Um, I'm always excited to preach on this particular Sunday, uh, but this Sunday is especially uh, special to me. Um, this is my last Sunday with you all on staff, not last Sunday forever, but last Sunday on staff. Um, but it's not just because of that. This Sunday is a really neat opportunity, this last Sunday of the year, because every year it's an opportunity for us to sort of reflect on God's grace and how he's brought us through the past year. And hopefully it's an opportunity for me to bring a word that God's spirit will use to renew us and recenter us as we go into the new year. And so I've been drawn to this particular passage here in Romans 12 for a couple of weeks, and so I'm excited to go through this with you. So let's turn our attention to God's word, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Paul says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is God's word. Let's go to him and ask his help in understanding and applying it. Heavenly Father, we've confessed this morning that your word does indeed come with power. And Father, we pray that your word would come with power to us this morning. Father, would you take my words, uh, Lord, any ramblings that might be there, Father, would you fix those words, uh, and would you, by your Spirit, apply these words, your words, to our hearts, and transform us and make us into the image of Jesus. And we ask it in his name. Amen. So I once heard a pastor tell a story of a farmer. This farmer had been in the fields all day, working, sweating, you know. He's getting tired, and as the day drew to a close... He just kind of takes a break, and he stops to look and admire the sunset. And as he looks up, he notices this strange cloud formation. I think that's my cute nephew back there. Uh, sorry, Joanna's going to probably kill me for that later. Um, but, but anyway, so this farmer, he notices this strange cloud formation. And as he sits there and he kind of stares intently at this cloud, he starts to see what he thinks are letters uh, sort of come to shape, and he notices, he thinks he sees the letters P and C. Now, this farmer was a guy who considered himself to be a very spiritual person, and so he thought to himself, surely there's a message in this cloud that God has got for me. And so after some thought, he convinced himself that that P and C, that had to mean preach Christ. And so the farmer sells his farm, all of his equipment, he goes and enrolls in a Bible college, he earns his degree, and he takes a pastor at his first church, and he gets ready to preach his first sermon. And he gets up to preach his first sermon, and it was an absolute flop. I mean, it was just an absolute disaster. It was unorganized, uh, I mean, boring, like half the congregation's asleep. And so one of the congregants comes up to the pastor after the service, and he was familiar with his pastor's call to ministry. And he comes up to the pastor, and he says... Pastor, let me ask you, are you sure that when God put PC in the clouds, he wasn't just saying to plant corn? It's probably a fair question, right? One of the most common conversations I think you have in ministry uh, is when people are trying to discern God's will for their life. And discerning God's will 
can be hard, right? It often seems kind of murky, but it typically we try and discern God's will when we're facing some kind of a big decision. We've all been there maybe a few times, maybe a lot of times. But it's like we come to a crossroads where we have to pick a direction. And typically what makes this so hard is that none of the choices on the table seem to be sinful options, right? Like they're all equally valid options. So we're, we're presented with choices like, for example, what college should I attend? Should I date this person? Should I marry this person? What job should I take? Should I leave this job, take another one? Should I stay in this one? Should I buy this house? Where or how should I school my children? Right? We've all faced decisions like that. And when we face those decisions, one of the first things we do is we begin to pray and say, God, would you reveal your will to me? And I don't know about you, maybe I'm just way less spiritually mature than you guys, but typically when I pray that prayer, God, reveal your will to me for this particular decision, something frustrating tends to happen. The answer doesn't always get very clear. I don't know if you've ever had that happen, but a lot of times God, God's will seems to be kind of murky. We don't get the crystal clear answer that we're hoping for. And so maybe it leaves us thinking, all right, well, why, why is God not revealing his will to me? How do I go about finding his will? And so, friends, I just want to give you some good news this morning, is that God actually has revealed his perfect will for your life, and you can know it. And so what I want to do this morning is I want us to look at this topic of God's will. And what that's going to involve is it's going to mean that we have to reframe the way we think about God's will. And just a disclaimer... I'm going to go and tell you that God's will for your life and for my life has far more to do with the kind of person we are becoming than the particular decisions we face. I'm going to say that again. God's will for you and for me has more to do with the kind of person we are becoming than the particular decisions we face. Now, on its face there, that might seem like God is pretty uninterested in the details of your lives and the decisions that you make. And I promise that couldn't be farther from the case. In fact, God's will for the kind of person you become has great implications for the kind of decisions we make when we come to those crossroads, and we'll talk about that. But this morning, we're going to look at four ways that we're going to walk in God's will, that we can be sure we're walking in God's will. And here are the four points. We're going to rest in God's mercy, respond to God's mercy, be transformed, and walk in God's perfect will. So let's start with the first one there, rest in God's mercy. When we come to verse 1, I don't know about you, but when you come to verse 1, my mind automatically jumps to the second half of verse 1, where it says that we are to present ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. And we're going to get to the second half of the verse, but if we skip the first half of this verse, I think we miss something very, very important. Hear this first half of the verse again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Some of your translations might say, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercies. In that little phrase, Paul is reminding his readers that their motivation for presenting their lives as a living sacrifice, their motivation for obeying God, is God's mercy. Paul has spent 11 chapters unpacking the ways God has poured his grace on them. And how has God poured his grace on them? In the gospel. The good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. See, back in chapter 1, Paul tells us that we're all guilty 
of making this terrible trade, right? He says that every single person on the face of the planet is guilty of worshiping the things that God created rather than God himself. And not only that, he says that we all, every single one of us, we have also tried to be God ourselves. We have tried to put ourselves in his place and sit on his throne, deciding for ourselves what's right and what's wrong. And that's the essence of sin, And Paul says that because of that, we now fall short of his standard of holiness. But folks, it's nothing less than cosmic treason against the king of the universe. And what do we earn with our treason? What's the wage for our sin? It's death. And how does God respond to such hubris and foolishness? He sends his son to die for us. He chooses to apply Jesus' perfection to our account, what we call justification. He adopts us by placing his spirit within us. He loves us with an everlasting love that stretches back into eternity past and will go on into eternity future. His love is all-encompassing. And that, friends, is mercy. And you and I need to be reminded before we go any further into this passage that we are not saved by our will or our good works. In fact, Paul says it very clearly in Romans 9:13. We are saved by God's mercy alone. Paul is telling the church in Rome and us that obedience and good works flow from this. In other words, we are working from God's mercy, not for God's mercy. God gives mercy before he ever calls us to obedience. If we get that order mixed up, it's not a small thing. If we begin to think that we are working for God's mercy rather than from God's mercy, we lose the heart of Christianity. We have lost the reason that Jesus came and died to begin with. And all of a sudden, we may use the same language. We may call ourselves a church. We may call ourselves Christians. But if we get that order out of, out of alignment, if we get that swapped, then we've become no different than every other religion on the face of the planet that's trying to earn God's approval. The heart of Christianity is that we're working from mercy, not for it. Now, I don't want you to miss this, that the first thing this passage calls us to do is not to, uh, to be in God's will, is not to present our lives as a living sacrifice. The first thing this passage calls us to do is receive and rest upon God's mercy offered to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything else we're going to talk about builds on top of that. So we rest in God's mercy. Then what does Paul say? How else do we walk in God's will? Next, we respond to God's mercy. So here Paul lays out the paradigm for all of the Christian life. He says there in the second half of verse 1, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. See, in the Old Testament, sacrifices were a vital part of worship for the nation of Israel. On one hand, these sacrifices were to make atonement for sins. But even outside of that, These sacrifices on a much more general level were simply part of their worship. It was a response to God's grace, a response to his mercy. And these animals that they offered as sacrifices, they were to be spotless and without blemish. That's the qualifications God placed on these sacrifices through the Old Testament. So this would have been the most valued animal of the flock, and that is what God called them to sacrifice, that which was most costly. And here, Paul Paul calls us to offer sacrifices of our own, but with two very important differences. First, he doesn't call us to offer an animal as a sacrifice, but he calls us to offer our very own lives. 
And second, we don't offer our lives to pay for sin because Jesus already did that, right? Jesus was the perfect sacrifice that died once for sin. So this living sacrifice that we're called to, again, I'm going to keep just pounding this drum, is not to earn God's mercy. It's because of God's mercy. This sacrifice that we are called to be uh, is a response to God's mercy in the gospel. It's a perfectly rational response to God's mercy in the gospel. And notice that Paul says that we are to offer our bodies as a sacrifice. Don't read that to mean that Paul's only concerned with what's outward and physical here. That word for bodies and the context of the passage both tell us that he is talking about our whole person, our whole lives, body and soul. So one of the prevailing philosophies of this day uh, was Platonism. And if you're not familiar with that, this is so, so general. They, go, go talk to Clay Vinson or Kevin Corley if you really want like a deep dive on this. They probably know more than I do. But the, in general, the rub with this particular philosophy, uh, especially when it comes into contact with Christianity, is that the, I guess you could say the people who followed Plato and, and propagate his teaching – they felt like the physical was way less important than that which was spiritual. They, they felt like bodies and really the physical world was more of a hindrance and a burden uh, than something to be valued. And so what Paul is doing here is he's challenging that thought process that would have existed in the church at Rome. And he's telling them that our whole lives are, be, are to be presented to God. And, and even though I don't think anyone here considers themselves to be a Platonist, um, we can easily make the same mistake, and I think we often do, when we compartmentalize our lives. What do we mean by that? I think that what we do is we tend to think that worship only exists in kind of the churchy realm. Or that worship is what I do at my kitchen table when I'm having a quiet time over a cup of coffee. Worship is what I do when I pray, right? We, we sort of make everything that involves worship, we sort of relegate it over to this real abstract realm of our lives. And while certainly those things are part of presenting our lives to God in worship, true worship is not merely inward and abstract. True worship is respond, in response to God's grace is concrete, and it's going to encompass our whole lives. So don't miss this, that every aspect of our lives, our own bodies, our jobs, our relationships, as, as, as mundane and unspectacular as those things may seem to you. Those are the arenas that God has given you to worship in response to his grace. Just as the Israelites were called to live or to give a costly sacrifice, spotless and without blemish, so we are called to present our lives to God at great cost to our preferences, our comfort, and our desire to live for ourselves. Christian, God's will for your life is that worship would not merely be your Sunday routine, but rather that it would be the lens through which you view all of your life. And this goes against the grain for us, which is why we need what Paul says next, which is to be transformed. If you look at verse 2, Paul says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So here Paul tells us that there are two possible patterns for our life. That of this world or this age and that of the age to come. He tells us not to be conformed to this age, but instead to be transformed so that we are shaped by God's will. And you can hear this in the two words that Paul uses there, conformed versus transformed. 
the easy thing, what we default to, is being conformed to this present age. See, like chameleons, what we do is we tend to simply reflect the color of our surroundings. And what Paul is urging us to do is to live a life enjoying and making much of God. But too often, we just slip into doing the easy thing, living with only ourselves in mind. And so this is why Paul says we must be transformed. That w- Greek word there, transformed, is where we get our, uh, our word for metamorphosis. And so if you just had like a flashback to a seventh grade science class, right, you probably remember uh, when you talked about metamorphosis, you would see pictures in a textbook of this really ugly caterpillar, right, that goes in and makes a cocoon. And then what happens when it comes out of the cocoon? It doesn't like a caterpillar anymore, right? It is transformed. It has become something else. Uh, it's become a butterfly, right? Um, Paul says that what we need, the, the, that the transformation we need is no less drastic than that. The goal is, is that we want to increasingly reflect heaven more than earth. We want to represent the affections, the ethics uh, of heaven rather than our current evil age that we live in. And if that's what we need in order to be a living sacrifice, how does it take place? Right? If I need to be transformed, how do I actually become transformed? I told you this Greek word for transform means metamorphosis, but it also occurs only a few times in the New Testament and one of those places is in 2 Corinthians 3.18. If you want to flip there, you can, but I'm going to read it to you. Now, this is another one of Paul's letters to the church at Corinth, and he says this. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. There's that word again. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Paul tells us that this transformation is not an instantaneous thing. Transformation is ongoing. He says that we are transformed one degree at a time into the image of the one that we behold, Jesus. So where do we find the glory of Jesus? What are we beholding when we say we behold Jesus, right? That sounds really spiritual. But when we say behold Jesus to become like Jesus, what is it that we behold Where do we find his glory? Where does his majesty and perfection and holiness and kindness all merge together? It's the gospel, right? The the same gospel that saves us by God's mercy, that is the gospel we are called to set our gaze on over and over and over again. Friends, we don't move on from the gospel. We simply grow deeper and deeper into the gospel, The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of his life, death, and resurrection, is not just how you enter into God's kingdom. It is the air you will breathe in God's kingdom for the rest of your life and on into eternity. We never move on from the gospel. And what Paul is saying is, is as we walk with Jesus, as we engage our minds... As we read God's word and we commune with him through prayer and we remind ourselves of the gospel, this strange, mysterious, slow but sure work happens. God's Holy Spirit comes and changes us one degree at a time and makes us more like Jesus as we behold him. Now, if that's the need for transformation, how it happens, what's the result of all this? Let's try and tie all this together and get very practical for a second. This is point number four, walk in his perfect will. The second half of verse two there, 
Actually, I'm just going to read all of verse 2 again. He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul says that the result of being transformed is that it enables us to test and discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That word test there, it actually means to know by experience. So this isn't just an intellectual knowledge. It's actually coming to taste it, right, to, to experience it. Uh, one of my favorite movies is Good Will Hunting. I don't know if you've ever seen Good Will Hunting. If you haven't, you now have homework for the afternoon. Go watch Good Will Hunting. Um, there's a scene there, and uh, I realize I can't really quote this scene in church, but there is a scene where, uh, if you're unfamiliar with the premise of this movie, uh, Will is this brilliant, I mean, genius-level young man. Uh, and he's a, a dropout, not enrolled in college, always in trouble. And he gets discovered working at a local college uh, because he would go in and solve math problems on the board after everyone had gone home. And so people finally connect the dots and realize who he is, and he's exceptionally gifted. But they just couldn't get through to him, so they bring in a counselor, Robin Williams, uh, to come and work with this young man and try and break through to him. And there's a really pivotal scene where Robin Williams is trying to explain to this young man and all of his arrogance that there's a difference between knowledge and knowledge by experience. And he goes through this long list, and in, one of, uh, and in this list, one of the things he says, he says, if I were to ask you about Michelangelo... You could tell me all kinds of things about him. But have you ever stepped foot in the Sistine Chapel? Have you ever smelled the air in the Sistine Chapel? Have you ever sat and gazed at his work? You've never experienced that, right? Uh, I, guys, I can tell you facts about the Grand Canyon. But unless you've actually gone and seen the enormity of the Grand Canyon, right, hiked down into the bottom of it and seen the heights of its walls, then you haven't ever experienced the Grand Canyon Paul's saying that we can know God's will, and not just intellectually coming to grips with it. We can know it by experience. Now, knowing God's will is not an abstract ordeal. That's the point of this. See, up to this point, we've been talking about our relationship to God and how we're called to receive his mercy, how we're transformed by grace, and how we're called to present our whole lives to him as a response to his mercy. And in verse 3, Paul's going to begin to tell us exactly what it looks like to live as a sacrifice to God. I wish that I could just read the rest of the book of Romans to you, but here's some high points. Romans uh, 12, verse 3, he says this. Uh, he says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but he should think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Immediately after unpacking God's grace and this overarching call, right, this paradigm for our life to live in response to God's grace as a living sacrifice, Paul then says the first tier, right, the first arena this transforms our relationships is actually the way we relate to ourselves. He tells us to view ourselves rightly, humbly, right? Not We, we don't want to think too highly of ourselves, nor do we want to think too lowly of ourselves. We want to view ourselves through the lens of the gospel. And he moves out from there and he begins to talk about our gifting, he says that every person has been given gifts to serve other people with. So use your gifting. Then he moves out into the second tier and he says to love God's people with a genuine 
love. This is verse 9. To outdo them in showing one another or in showing honor to one another. So he moves from how we view ourselves to how we view people in the church, God's people. And then he moves out one more level, those outside the church. Verse 14, he quotes Jesus here. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. He tells them that as far as it depends on them to live peaceably with all people. And then he goes out one more level. And he starts to talk about the way that we relate to the government. He says that our relationship to the government is one of respect. Knowing that God placed the government there for our good. And they do not do anything apart from his will. Paul's telling us that for us to live in God's will is not something that we do in isolation. It's not abstract. To walk in God's will can be really boiled down to what Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, And this is God's perfect will for you, Christian, that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. True worship honors God by loving other people sacrificially and tangibly. And this is what God most deeply wants for your life. And in the gospel, he has given you everything that you need to walk in his will and become that kind of person. Now, in conclusion, let's type a few loose ends here because I did say at the beginning, right, that God's will is about making us a certain type of person, not so much answering the particulars about decisions we have come up in our lives. But that's not to say that God doesn't speak to those particular decisions, I heard a pastor once say this, and you might be asking, right, Zach, how in the world does God's will address this difficult decision I have to make over here at work? How does it address where do we live or where we school our kids? I heard a pastor say once that God's will is not a dot on a map that we're trying to find, but rather it's more like a pasture. And what God gives us in his commands is he tells us how to rightly worship him and love other people. Every command that God gives in the Bible addresses one of those two things, right? How to worship him rightly, how to love other people well. And what he does with those commands is he builds a sort of fence for us. And inside that fence is where we abide in God's will. Inside that fence, there's tremendous freedom to follow Christ and make decisions. So that means that when you come to a difficult decision in life, the first question you can ask is whether or not one of those options, one of your choices in front of you, violates one of God's commands. So if you're facing two or three different options, facing a difficult choice, you can ask, do any of these options break one of God's commands? And if the answer is yes, then that's automatically out, right? It's an easy way to strike out one option. Most of the time, that's not the case, right? Questions about where we school our kids or where we live... There's really not a right and wrong in there. So that brings us to the next question we can ask. The next thing we can ask is, what option best enables me to love God and serve others well? That's an important question to ask. Every single decision that we make in life, that ought to be one of the first questions we begin to ask is, which one of these allows me to love God and serve others the best? And if all choices are on equal footing there, then I want you to know that you can breathe and have a tremendous amount of freedom to make a choice and walk down that path. There's freedom in God's fence. And if it doesn't violate God's law, 
and both options are equally loving to God and other people, you can simply make a choice and start walking. And in that case, a good prayer to do this, first I'd say, right, this is why we need wisdom, is because most choices we make in life can't be boiled down to a right or wrong. So we need God's wisdom to help us navigate life. But one of the most helpful prayers I think you can pray when facing difficult decisions is to simply ask God to shut doors that need to be shut. To come to a place where there is no clear right and wrong and you're not breaking any commands and you're trying to love God and other people, you can say, all right, this option seems best. I'm going to walk down this road and God, if this isn't your will, if this isn't what you want for me, then please shut the door. And then address another person in the room right maybe maybe you haven't maybe right now you're not coming to that crossroads and you're trying to make a decision now one of the common things you hear when people talk about god's will is not just an impending decision but it's actually some regret on the other side of a decision so sometimes you'll hear people say and we've all done it right that we look back and wonder man i made some choices i shouldn't have made have I missed God's will for my life? Did the train leave without me? Did I do something to my life that has totally derailed God's plan? And I just want to encourage you with a nugget from one of Kevin's friends uh, that he shared with you before, that you simply are not important enough to mess up God's plan for your life. Just a few chapters before this, in Romans 8, Paul encourages Christians and tells them that God works all things for the good of those who love them or love him. And so, folks, I just want you to know you can look back, even at your bad decisions, your unwise choices, and know that you at no point left the pavement of God's plan for your life. That God's will for your life is ultimately to conform you to the image of Jesus. And because he's good and because he's sovereign and because he's wise... He takes all of our mess, all of our unwise choices, all of our failures, all of our mistakes, and he uses that ultimately to make us into the image of Jesus. And as you walk with him, those bad choices will simply be a part of your story, how God saved you and transformed you to make much of him. Folks, my my prayer for you as a church, for you as individual people that I know and love, is that as you walk with Jesus... This desire to live as a sacrifice to God by worshiping him and loving other people would continue to be the heartbeat of your lives and the heartbeat of this church. And that that would enable you to make decisions with a great deal of freedom, knowing that God is going to continue to work in you to produce his will for your life, which is to make you like Jesus. You can trust him. You can walk with him. And know that he's got, that he is your guide, just as we said earlier. He is your guide every step of the way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray if anyone here doesn't know you. Uh, Father, maybe there are people in this room that have lived a life conforming to the patterns of this world. And like a fish in water, they just didn't know they were wet. Father, my prayers after hearing your word, your good word to us, Father, that they would be transformed. Lord, that they would recognize their need for your mercy and that you offer it to them freely in the gospel. Father, for the rest of us, I pray that our lives wouldn't be marked by spinning our wheels in indecision 
or getting bogged down in regret, looking back, wondering if we missed your will. But instead, that with full confidence in your sovereignty and a clear picture of what your will for us is in Christ, we would walk forward with boldness. Father, I pray that you continue to use this church mightily, that it would be, uh, that it would be a place and a people that you would continue to use for people to come to know your love for them in Christ. God, thank you for your mercy towards us. Thank you for your love for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite Steve Tipton up, our elder, and he's going to lead us in a time of prayer. Let's pray together. Father, uh, we are at the end of a year and um, we think of all those things that have come our way this year and uh, how disturbing some of them have been how how um, anxious uh, we we may be in